All right, uh, welcome to Philosophy for the Vulgar. My name is Aaron Yarmel, and I'm a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Hey, Ami, what have you been thinking about this week? I've been thinking about Rousseau and his social contract theory. This is Ami Palmer. I teach philosophy at Ohio Northern University. Um, Aaron, what have you been thinking about? I've been thinking a lot about the fallacy of composition. Well, you're in luck, because that's what we're going to talk about next. Why don't I start with a, an intuitive example to illustrate the fallacy of composition, and then we'll talk about it more technically. So suppose someone says this, um, I bought the best eggs, I bought the best vanilla bean, I bought the best cayenne peppers, I bought the best chocolate, I bought the best lettuce, and I bought the best sausages and I put them all in a casserole. And therefore, I will serve for you the, the best dish that you, will have, that you will ever eat. Most of us have the intuitive sense that there's something gone wrong with that argument. So what would you say has gone wrong with that argument? Yeah, well, I think two things have gone wrong. The first is that it's not vegan. And the second <laughs> is that just because you have the best, just because you have the best of each ingredient doesn't mean that when you put them all together, the conglomeration is going to be any good. Great. Yeah. So this is a common error in thinking, which is when people think that what is true of the members of a group or of a whole is also true of the whole. And there's some very intuitive examples to illustrate this. So another really intuitive example would be um, sportball teams. There are many examples of sports teams where they had all the best players um, or most of the best players, but that team didn't win the championship, right? So mm. If you made the assumption that just because a team has the best players, that it is therefore the best team, you would have committed the fallacy of composition. So those are like some intuitive, those are some intuitive examples. I want to give you some historical examples. So William Paley, fam his famous teleological argument, which is the argument for the existence of God, goes, goes like this. Everything in the universe has a cause, therefore the universe also must have a cause. So it doesn't follow necessarily from the fact that everything inside the universe has a cause, that the universe itself has a cause. It might be true, but it, you can't make the necessary inference. With, with that in mind, let's take a look at Rousseau. There's a, there's a part in the social contract where he talks about why people come out of the state of nature. And this is foreshadowing a little bit of what we're going to be talking about later. But I think since we're talking about the fallacy of composition, we should just use this as an example. What he, what he says is, I suppose men to have reached the point at which the obstacles in the ways of their preservation in the state of nature show their power of resistance to be greater than the resources at the disposal of each individual for his maintenance in that state. That primitive condition can then subsist no longer, and the human race would perish unless it changed its manner of existence. All right, let me let's just translate in that to pl into plain English for people. If you just try to live your on your own outside of any kind of organized society, um, it's very difficult, and eventually the forces that you come up against are going to be too much for a single individual to bear. And now. There's this next question, which is how can we actually surmount that? And what Rousseau says is, 
But as men cannot engender new forces, but only unite and direct existing ones, they have no other means of preserving themselves than the formation, by aggregation, of a sum of forces great enough to overcome the resistance. These they have to bring into play by means of a single motive power and cause to act in concert. So the idea here is that you can't just create a new force to help you overcome the resistance that nature is giving to you. What we do is we get together with everybody else and by aggregation, we're able to combine our individual powers enough to be able to overcome the challenges that that nature is throwing at us. Yeah. So this passage really jumped out at me because later in the later books of the social contract, which we'll we'll discuss at another time, Rousseau is very careful not to commit the fallacy of composition. But I think he actually commits it here because he's saying, what is the total amount of force that a group of individuals could create? The total amount of force that a group of individuals could, could create is equal to the aggregate of what each individual member could create. And this to me is the fallacy of composition. And it's like saying that a team is only as good as the, in, as the aggregation of the individual skills of each member of that team. Now, there's a lot of work in what's called system science to talk about what's called emergence. And emergence or emergent properties are what explain why the fallacy of composition is a fallacy. Because when you have multiple individuals, you have the properties of those individuals, but you also have the relations or what are called relational properties between those individuals. And so when you get a group of people or a group of any kind of entity, you not only have the properties of those individual members, but you have the properties of the relations between them. And and those relations between them can create what's called emergence or emergent properties. And I think we can see that very clearly with, with in the example of a sports team, right? There are emergence, emergent properties that come from the way that different individuals interact with each other and how their skills interact with each other. And that's why it's not always the case that the team with the best individual players will be the best team. And just going back to look at this, this paragraph, I'm always interested in seeing what changes people can make to what they write that would make it true. So if he had just said, um, but we have to unite and direct existing forces, just, just full stop, that would be fine. The problem is when he says, we can't engender new forces, but only unite and direct existing ones, that is blocking the possibility that as a result of our unification and direction of forces, a new one emerges. And then the other problem is that he says, the formation by aggregation of a sum of forces great enough to overcome the resistance. It's the sum of forces plus these new emergent properties that, that do it. So he's very close. With a couple of very small tweaks, I think he could turn this around into an A. Um, but <laughs> I think that we'd have to take off some points for the fallacy. All right, before moving into uh, Rousseau, I just want to foreshadow that in other sections, he is very careful about distinguishing between um, mere aggregation and being aware of the emergent properties that come from uh, bringing a group of people together. And that really is a big part of Rousseau's political philosophy, which we are going to see in the next segment. Why should I care about philosophy? All right, welcome to our segment on Rousseau. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks digging into his 
social contract theory. Now, let's just get clear on what he's trying to accomplish here. So I want to read to you the very first couple of sentences from this book. He says, I want to inquire whether in the civil order there can be some legitimate and sure rule of administration, taking men as they are and the laws as they can be. In this, in, in this inquiry, I will try always to combine what right permits with what interest prescribes, so that justice and utility not be disjoined. So there's two important things that he's trying to do here. The first is he's trying to understand what is it that makes state power legitimate. And very closely tied to that is how do we ensure that societies or political societies are stable over time? The second thing he's trying to figure out is what are the limits of political power and how do we reconcile our political duties with our self-interest? One thing that comes up a lot when I teach ethics is students will want to know, why should I care what ethics says? Why should I be moral? And often, especially when I teach business ethics, they'll talk about self-interest. It, it seems to them like, here's what I want to do. Here's what's good for me. Here's what I would be pursuing if I was just trying to you know, live a good life. Then ethics comes in, in out of nowhere and says, hey, no, <laughs> don't do that. You're constrained. You must follow all these commandments. And it's this outside thing that's completely divorced from any concern for my own interests. And I think what Rousseau is doing that is so so powerful is that he's saying, I'm not going to draw that sharp line there. In fact, I think of self-interest and and uh, legitimacy as intertwined. Yeah, he's really what he's going to try to do is try to show that self-interest and political obligation line up. <laughs> So Aaron, Rousseau begins with a riddle. And I think what we what we want to do here is, is let's let's lead with the riddle and then we'll work through the text and then see if after working through the text we can understand the riddle. Yeah, I love riddles, so let's jump right in. So, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others and still remains a greater slave than they. How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question, I think I can answer. All right. So if, if you're perplexed by this, you are like everybody else. I remember when I first read this text, I loved that line and it, it's always stuck with me, but I took me a long time to really understand what was going on. So let's kind of dive into the text a little bit. And then at the end, we're going to come back to that riddle and see if we can understand it. So we're going to jump ahead to book one, chapter five in the good book. So when we think about political legitimacy, we're thinking about like not simply why I do obey, but why I should obey. Yeah. Like, like why is it that somebody can tell me what to do? And, why, and, and what, yeah. would, what would make a political command legitimate? You're not the boss of me. Well, I think there's a, there's there's one answer that's kind of intuitive that comes right from them, and it's just because I said so. 
you know, you, you think about like, like an ordinary parent saying that they're just like, why do I have to, you know, do the dishes? Because I said so. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm bigger and stronger than. Right. So here's like the, if we go back to Plato, the Plato's Republic, uh, Thrasymachus, right? He says, well, political power is really just power. It rests on, on, on the ability to exercise greater force than someone else. So Rousseau like, okay, descriptively, yeah, you're right. Might is going to compel people to obey you, but it doesn't make it legitimate. And how do we know? Because the moment that you can no longer exercise greater force on them, they no longer follow your orders. So it has no, it, it, it's completely superfluous. Yes. It, it adds nothing over the fact that you're stronger. Yeah. And, and the other example he gives is that, well, imagine someone invades a, a, a people and they rule them. Well, the moment that the ruler is dead, the that mm-hmm. political community doesn't continue as a political community, right? The conquered lands don't continue as a unified political community. And that tells us something about the legitimacy from the point of view of the governed with respect to the entity that's governing them. They don't see it as a legitimate entity and they're not a unified political community. So here we can we can talk a little bit about what we talked about uh, in the first segment. Like we're asking one of the questions we're asking is, what is the difference between a mere collection of individuals and a political community? Right. So we we commonly like don't think that a political community is identical to a mere collection of individuals, right, or the aggregation of a group of individuals. We think that a political community has some other properties. Like, and so what is it that a political community has that an, aggreg- that an aggregation of a group of individuals doesn't have? And that's answering that question is going to help us answer what is it that makes political commands legitimate? To answer that question, we need to go look at what is the act that makes a group of people a political community. Because if a political community can choose a leader, it means that there was some prior act by which that aggregation of individuals became a political community. And furthermore, there's in something about the act that created the political community created a majoritarian rule. Because in most political communities, we don't require that everybody agree, every single person in the community agree to who the leader is going to be. We accept the majority rule or some variation of a majority rule. But at, but what Rousseau says is that at some point in time, there had to be a prior agreement that people would abide by a majority rule. And so what was the act that unified people and made them not merely an aggregation of individuals, but a a political community. And just to make this super concrete, imagine you have 20 people living on a deserted island. You might think that the political community comes into existence once they all vote and decide on a leader. But that can't be right. And it can't be right because in order for a vote to even happen, they must already have decided that they will abide by a voting procedure. And also that they need to you know, determine what the, uh, the, the rules of the voting procedure are, are going to be. 
Otherwise, there'd be no reason why anybody would accept the result that they didn't vote for. And so we're, we're, we're homing in on that. We're, we're trying to figure out where that point is prior to the first vote or, or prior to the first act as, you know, that happens after a community that establishes that the community comes into existence. Yeah. And so here we go back to what we talked about in the first segment, right? How is it that people form a political community? Well, at some point, people realize that individual like on their own, the forces of nature or the demands of living on your own are too great for one person. And so you have to unify with other people in order to survive. And so you have a choice. You can stay on your own and perish, or you can unify your resources and forces with other people and you form a community that way. That's the first step. Now, just we need to just get some basic philosophical terminology out of the way because we'll be referring back to it. So the state in which people are not in a political community, in political philosophy, we call that the state of nature. It's a hypothetical state because humans are intrinsically social creatures. And depending on which philosopher you read, um, the state of nature is characterized differently. Um, So for example, for Hobbes, it's characterized as a state of war. For Rousseau, it's a semi-idyllic state and Locke and Rousseau are, are more similar in that respect. Um, but the point is you have a pre-political existence. You just, maybe you have like tribes or um, extended families, but there's no organized political society. That's called the state of nature. So regardless of which political philosopher you're reading that appeals to the state of nature, they all agree that political society is better than the state of nature. The way that we get out of the state of nature is something called the social contract. And like any contract, the social contract has uh, clauses. And the way that uh, Rousseau frames it is is as follows. There's basically one thing to keep in mind. Um, And here's a quote. These clauses properly understood may be reduced to one. The total alienation of each associate together with all his rights to the whole community. For in the first place... As each gives himself absolutely, the conditions are the same for all. And this being so, no one has any interest in making them burdensome to others. Okay, good. There's a lot of great stuff to discuss there. Um, So the first is that when we enter into a community, on Rousseau's view, we give up all of our natural freedom. So in the state of nature... You can't tell me what to do. I'll just do what I want. But when I when I become part of a political community, I have to take into consideration the interests of others. Um, the other piece here that's going to be really important is that – so it might be kind of scary. What do you mean? I, 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 I turn in all my natural – my quote-unquote natural rights 
in favor of these civil rights, like that's really scary. Like I give up my right to self-defense. I give up my property rights, all to join this community. How do I know that people aren't just going to take advantage of me? Well, the reason is because when I become part of a community, whatever rules are proposed are, are, are applied to all equally. And so if I say we should steal everybody's property, well, then my property is going to be stolen too. And so I will not propose any rules that are burdensome, that are unreasonably burdensome, because I'm going to be subject to those rules as well. Now, I do want to point out uh, something where I mean, we will eventually cover Locke, but it's important to point out there's a difference between Locke and Rousseau. Right, so Locke thinks that we hold on to certain natural rights, even when when we enter into the social contract. Whereas this is the dividing line. So, but Rousseau thinks when we enter the social contract, we give them all up. So all rights become the result of the social contract. So the reason why Rousseau thinks you have to give up all of your natural rights into the social contract is because if you hold on to some natural rights, that means there are some rights that the state can't regulate. And so if there's a conflict between two individuals, there is no third party that can mediate. And you have conflict between individuals in the political body that can't be resolved by the state. So, so one way that that works is that when we're in the state of nature, we don't have property. All we have is possession. Mm-hmm. So I can walk up to a rock and pick it up and hold it. And I possess that rock. But all that means is that I'm, you know, the first person right, like right now to pick up that rock and hold it. And I only have it as long as I can hold on to it before somebody else takes it from me or until I'm too weak to keep holding it. And property is very different. Property is something that, according to so can be founded only on a positive title. And so it only becomes property where I'm able to have uh, property rights to objects. Once I leave the state of nature, um, give up my rights of possession and instead have these civil rights to property. Yeah. So that's a really good point. So, you know, it seems like you wouldn't want to give up your property going into the social contract, but in fact, your prop, your quasi property rights in the state of nature are only as strong as you are. Um, They only extend as far as you have force to uh, hold off other people from taking your stuff. But if people collaborate, then you're in trouble. But if you enter into civil society, then the state enforces property rights against anyone who tries to violate them. And so your property rights are actually more secure once you enter into civil society because you have the whole mechanism of the state preserving them. And the same goes for all your rights. And I think we're, we're beginning to see answers to our riddle. I'm not going to jump to it yet, but at least in my mind, things are kind of becoming clarified as I reflect back on it with this new information. Yeah, I think when we read chapter seven, we'll be able to solve most of the riddle. So why don't we move to chapter seven? So I just want to read this, this one sentence. Um, this formula shows that the act of association, meaning entering into social contract, involves a reciprocal engagement between the public and private individuals 
and that each individual, by contracting, so to speak, with himself, finds himself engaged in a twofold relation, namely as a member of the sovereign toward private individuals and as a member of the state towards the sovereign. So basically, for each person who enters into the social contract, they take on two identities. The first identity is as the, as the sovereign. They participate in the legislation and how the community, in the, in the rules that are going to govern the community. So in that sense, they, they preserve their self-rule or their autonomy because they are part of the sovereign. They're part of a greater whole. Um, but when they are on the receiving end of laws, they are, they are citizens. They are members of the state. And so individuals in a state have this dual identity. As sovereign, when they are acting um, in the capacity of coming up with legislation and enforcing legislation, and as a citizen or a member of the state where they, re- where they follow the, the laws that they had a part in making. And then here, I just want to emphasize one thing that's really important in the context of political philosophy that differentiates important views in contemporary political philosophy, right? So on, a, on Locke's view, right, there are certain natural laws that constrain what the state can do. Um, the state mm. cannot legislate anything because there are fundamental laws of nature that the state must protect. Rousseau takes a very different view because, so for Rousseau, you have to give up all your rights when you make the social contract because if you leave some rights outside of the political domain, then there's no third party that can arbitrate between disputes and so this means that all laws and all rights are constructed by the state and mitigated by the state. So this is a really important distinction in political philosophy. It's interesting because depending on, on what issue um, is being talked about, you can see both the left and the right will simultaneously occupy both positions. right? So when we talk about human rights – the, the left will often act as though these are universal and inviolable and no state could possibly take these away. On the right, they will also argue that there are certain rights that are inviolable, right? So maybe the right to bear arms or uh, free speech rights or rights to association. And so interestingly, both the right and the left can simultaneously occupy both what we'll call like a Lockean view and a Rousseauvian view, right? Depending on what the issue is. Yeah, great. So that actually leads us into the next section. I'm just going to read this. Um, He says, as soon as this multitude is thus united in one body, one cannot injure one of the members without attacking the body and still less can one injure the body without the members being affected. Thus duty and interest alike obligate 
the contracting parties to help one another. And the same men must strive to combine in this twofold relation all the advantages attendant on it. So on Rousseau's view, this arrangement of going all in on the social contract is what prevents abuses of power. Now, he, he, he's, he has a footnote at the end that we'll discuss. But at least um, in the ideal state, um, if everybody has, if, if everybody's rights are tied up in the political society, then no one is going to advocate for burdensome legislation because that same legislation is going to be applied to them. People have accused Rousseau as being the source of totalitarian philosophy. And also, you know, Burke accuses Rousseau's philosophy as being the cause of the French Revolution. And as he saw it, it was a bad thing. And we can see that very clearly uh, in this paragraph here where he says, now the sovereign, since it is formed entirely of the individuals who make it up, has not and cannot have any interests contrary to theirs. Consequently, the sovereign power has no need of a guarantor toward the subjects because it is impossible for the body to want to harm all of its members. And we shall see later that it cannot harm any one of them in particular. The sovereign, by the mere fact that it is, is always everything it ought to be. So let's break that down and translate that into everyday English. The main point is that since it is the people that inhabit the political community who are themselves the sovereign, it's not possible for the sovereign to issue commands that will harm the members of the political community. What are the situations where what he's saying is just obviously true? So maybe we can think about a smaller scale than a political community. And let's just think about an organization or a team. The idea is that what everybody agrees on under certain conditions, which we'll talk about later, cannot be different from what is good for that group of people. And Rousseau acknowledges that there, there's a difference between what individual members of a group or team might want, um, you know, their, their individual interests, and what is good or the interests of the group. Um, and th- I think this is where Rousseau gets his reputation for giving uh, philosophical grounds for totalitarianism because he says, hence, for the social compact not to be an empty formula, it tacitly includes the following engagement, which alone can give force to the rest, that whoever refuses to obey the general will shall be constrained to do so by the entire body. Which, mean, which means nothing other than he shall be forced to be free. For this is the condition which, by giving each citizen to the fatherland, guarantees him against all personal dependence. The condition which is the device and makes for the operation of the political machine and alone renders legitimate civil engagements which would otherwise be absurd, tyrannical, and liable to the most enormous abuses. All right, so um, I just moved 
from Ohio to Houston. And just like me a couple of days ago, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. Um, <laughs> that is good. I think like, I mean, really this is a, a justification of coercion, right? Why does the state legitimately tell me what to do when it conflicts with what is personally best for me? Well, I've entered into this social contract uh, that we are going to produce rules and laws that are best for the group, not just for particular individuals. As a member of the group, when I'm part of an integrated whole, what's good for me is what's good for the group, um, which even though it, it might not be in my individual self-interest. So there's some fancy footwork going on here. And just to make this super concrete, think about an institution like promise keeping among a group of friends. So let's mm-hmm. say you have 10 friends. What you, well, One question you can ask yourself is like, will our group as a whole be stronger if we introduce the institution of promise keeping? Where when I make a promise, I will keep that promise or other people will keep the promises to me. And there's going to be some sort of group enforcement mechanism through shaming and maybe through the rewards. So if you, if you break too many promises, you don't get to make plans anymore with the group, maybe you're even outcast. Mm-hmm. Now that's the sort of thing, promises are the sorts of things where when you make a promise, sometimes keeping that promise will not be in your immediate individual best interest. But you know, we, we, we still want to accept the institution of promise keeping because it's better for the group as a whole of which you are a part. And so when you're thinking about, you know, should I keep this promise? you're thinking about yourself in this dual role within the context of that 10-person friends group. You're the individual who wants to get out of taking your friend to the airport, even though you promised to do that. But you're also part of the group itself, which needs for its own continuance, the institution of promise keeping. Now, suppose you have this group of friends, but one of the people in this friends group is just massively more wealthy than everybody else. And they're able to create kind of a feudal situation. And Mm -hmm. by feudal, I mean like F-E-U-D-A-L, like feudalism, where they're just giving out favors and everybody else is kind of um, indebted to them. And and suppose to even make it more strong, everybody else is quite poor in this group of friends. So now you get this one very wealthy person and a bunch of kind of lackeys and hangers-on who depend on them. Now the problem you have is that you're going to get massively different interests. You're going to get massively different amounts of vulnerability to the continuation of an institution like promise keeping. And you're going to have one person who isn't going to feel as bound as the other people to maintain the delicate social order of the group. And so I th- hopefully what that does is it kind of brings home some of these really abstract ideas about you know, the relationship of the individual to the group and the way that massive inequalities might lead to different factions and undermine the sense in which people are bound to these rules. Yeah, I think, I think you've brought out two really important threads here. Uh, the first is, what is it that, that allows me to hold you accountable when you break a promise? Right. Well, we entered into an we we entered on Rousseau's like the social contract view. We entered into implicitly into a social contract where we said we would uphold the rules that we agree to and we would follow them. So there was a prior agreement or contract between us that I would follow the rules that that we come up with together. Right, and that's why it's legitimate 
for for you to come after me if I break a promise because I'm I'm violating uh, my the prior agreement. It doesn't matter if in a particular instance uh, it benefits me not to keep my promise, right? Because I had a prior agreement with all of us that I would keep my promises, right? And and those and those are the conditions of community. If we just all do whatever suits us best in any particular moment, then the community the community dissolves. And we're back into the state of nature. The other uh, important thread that you bring out, which I think uh, bears repeating, is this idea of, you know, as you get massive inequality, you get divergence of interests. And, you know, this is obviously what Madison is worried about as well, but for different reasons. Um, He recognizes that if one person is or 10% of the population is really wealthy and holds all the property and 90% doesn't hold much, that if you have a true democracy, that that 90% is going to advocate legislation that's going to redistribute the property in a way that benefits the 90% rather than the 10%. And Madison wants the propertied classes to keep their property, uh, even though they're a minority. They want to protect themselves from the, the majority. Whereas Rousseau says, look, you just can't have a stable society unless you do have relative equality. So before we return to the riddle that we began with, I just want to quickly summarize some of the really uh, important points in Rousseau. And, and I think that is the idea that a political community is something over and above a mere aggregation of individuals. And it is itself um, a unified entity which has a will. And that will, Rousseau gives the name, the general will. And the general will, that is the will of the unified entity of individuals in a political community, is different from the individual will of the members that make it up. All right, so I think we're ready now to go back to the riddle from the beginning. Let's do it. Man is born free. Yeah. All right. So man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others and still remains a greater slave than they. How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question, I think I can answer. So we're going to have to work through this in the order in which he presents the different parts of the riddle. Uh, So first part, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. The one way of understanding that sentence is that he's saying uh, following, you know, I was born a citizen of a free state that gave me certain kinds of freedoms. But the very thing that allowed for me to have those freedoms was the fact that I was a citizen of the state. I'm bound by the state. And we talked about how I have property rather than possession in a state, right? So the very thing that is my chains is also the thing that gives me my freedoms. So that's one one way of understanding this. Another thing that we can think about is that everybody's born with certain kinds of freedoms. They were talking about free will. These are these natural freedoms. And despite the fact that you're born free, you're born with all these freedoms, we then find ourselves in chains. We find ourselves in chains in the sense of the various constraints that the state places upon us. 
you know, not, not just the state, but also just society in general. There's certain expectations for behavior, certain social norms we have to follow. And so even though man is born um, with the capacity for self-determination, um, these various social and political forces uh, ch- chain us. And then do you want to take the next sentence? Sure. Yeah, uh, my translation is, one believes himself the other's master and yet is more a slave than they. So here Rousseau is commenting on how society in, in his time, the political organization in his time, didn't reflect what he thought was a, a legitimate social ordering. And so um, people that were high in the social hierarchy and the political hierarchy thought themselves master of everyone else, yet they were more a slave than everyone else because they were caught up in like trying to pursue social status and reputation and pursue wealth and pursue all these external goods um, that weren't really part of self-determination. And so how did, how did we get here is what he's asking. He says, I do not know. And what can make it legitimate? So now, okay, we, we've, we've, ed- we've exited the state of nature, but the, the way that we've organized our political society does not allow us to engage in this kind of self-determination that would be healthy for us. So how can we organize our political community in a way that allows for genuine self-determination? And his answer is going to be by recognizing the difference between the, the mere aggregation of what people want and the general will, which is our common interest of the political community. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us for this first part of Rousseau. I just want to say thanks to my dad, John Palmer, for doing the music for our podcast. And we hope you'll join us next time.